right, friends. Thank you for joining me today. Greg Kokel, your host on uh, Stand to Reason. I had a funny experience today uh, setting up for next week. That is the week for broadcasts between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, the office is closed. We we're taking that time off for our families along with everybody for the staff. Um, but that means we have to plug in a a something for consistency that you guys get something from us on a regular basis, even Christmas week. So we do things in advance, which is somewhat um, what I've done in the past when I've been out of studio and uh, on the time of the broadcast, we do something in advance. Sometimes we plug in a teaching, and in this case, um, the teaching is a teaching on the life of Christ, a course I did before Stand to Reason started, when I was still working at Hope Chapel in Hermosa Beach. It's over 30 years ago that I gave the talk. Well, I had to listen to the talk just to be able to provide an ample introduction to it. (laughs) That will be coming next week. But uh, it's only one segment of the larger course of 10 sessions on the life of Christ. But it was a little bit odd for me to listen to myself teaching 30 years ago, or, or more than 30 years ago. It was... Um, and I, you know, I, I, teaching is okay. That's why I'm putting it on board here. But, um, I realized I, I used to talk a lot faster than I do now. And, uh, I think my present style is better. I remember telling people I spoke up 180 miles an hour, up to 200, with gusts up to 200. And so, uh, be prepared. And that's a little bit the way I comport myself in that thing. But time has passed and I've learned some lessons. And uh, I have slowed down since then. But I hope you enjoy this next week from that course, The Life of Christ. And I explain there the frustration that I have, people always opining about Jesus, um, especially when they want to get Jesus on their team. And uh, so on their their team that is on their political side or on their sexual side or whatever it happens to be, advocating for their cause— And uh, they take passages and twist and distort and have no real understanding of the life of this greatest man who ever lived and uh, what he taught and how his life was divided up. I mean, it was only three and a half years, and there were were segments of how his ministry proceeded. Uh, People think of him as being, you know, really popular. He was at at the beginning, but then... A lot of folks got really mad at him about halfway through. I'm talking about the population and the general population. And so, anyway, uh, I'm glad for the course because it will provide some depth and breadth for you and understanding of the true Jesus of Nazareth and what he taught and why he came. And so you're less likely to get them, get him confused. Um, I think I said there that uh, once you start choosing and cherry-picking, basically, isolating things that Jesus said, um, you're just going to go south with it. You're going to get it wrong. you got to look at his whole life, and not just at his life, but, and I go into detail on some of this, is what happened before he he came, he arrived, the whole history of Israel, starting with the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 12. Um, it is all essentially laying the foundation, setting the stage for when Jesus would arrive when he did. And then when we look at the birth narratives, we see these 
statements by angels and by people and prophets and other folk that are reflecting on precisely um, how Jesus is fitting into the larger picture. So I hope you enjoy that time. Uh, just a reminder, we're, we're coming to the end of our days here for the 19... <laughs> for 2023. How'd the 19 get in there? I'm I'm like two and a half decades off. I guess I was thinking about when that teaching was given back in 1993 that I just was referring to. But we're in the final days of 2023. I want to encourage you once again, if you have not um, prayerfully considered giving to Stand a Reason, I, I'm asking you to do so. I don't ask for financial help very often, certainly not on the radio show. I do at the end of the year because it's appropriate to think at the end of the year how God has prospered you and how you've learned from whatever organizations or churches or whatever that have helped you, and then you say thank you by sharing all good things with him who is taught, who, who, do, who does the teaching. Him who is taught, sharing all good things with him who has done the teaching. That's in Galatians chapter 6. That means you, you give where you're fed is the general principle there. If we've fed you, uh, I encourage you to give and give generously, because that's how we keep going every year, 30 years now. You can go to str.org forward slash donate, and uh, if you give a gift of any size, by December 27th, you will receive from us a gift, which is a copy, a signed copy of the book Street Smarts, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. Now, a couple weeks ago, I went through a boatload of books and uh, signed them all. We had boxes and boxes and piles and piles all over the place, and I just checked the inventory. We're, we're down to just a few boxes, so people have been responding to this, and I'm very happy to see that. I'm happy because they've given, and I'm happy because we can give back to them something that I think will be valuable to you, uh, Street Smarts. And this book is a, a sequel to the tactics and it takes the third step of the tactical game plan and puts it on steroids, basically, dealing with a multitude of different issues um, that I explain how they go south and the challenges they represent to Christianity, what's wrong with them, and then how you can use questions in very specific ways to navigate conversations safely but effectively in a relaxed and gracious manner. So that we're sending it to you. The cutoff is the 27th of December for the extra book. So we receive your gift by then. However you send it, whether virtual or in the mail, then we'll put a book in the mail to you. All right? And uh, we've all sent out a lot of them already. So today, um, I, I want to, before I go to our open mic calls, um, given that this is um, basically just a few days before Christmas, some dear friends of Stand a Reason uh, sent me a poem that they send out to lots of other people because this is the time of year when if you have lost a loved one, this could be really hard, especially hard this time of year. And that I want to read the poem to you because I think it's sweet, okay? And it communicates a very important message regarding those who we love that have gone on before us to the Lord. And the title of this poem is, I'm Spending Christmas 
with Jesus this year. And here's how it goes. I see the countless Christmas trees around the world below, with tiny lights like heaven's stars reflecting in the snow. The sight is so spectacular. Please wipe away that tear, for I'm spending Christmas with Jesus Christ this year. I hear many Christmas songs that people hold so dear, but earthly music can't compare with the Christmas choir up here. I have no words to tell you the joy their voices bring, for it's beyond description to hear the angels sing. I know how much you miss me. Trust God and have no fear, for I'm spending Christmas with Jesus Christ this year. I can't tell you of the splendor or the peace here in this place. Can you imagine Christmas with our Savior face to face? May God uplift your spirit as I tell him of your love. Then pray for one another as you lift your eyes above. So let your hearts be joyful, and let your spirits sing, for I'm spending Christmas in heaven, and I'm walking with the King. That's beautiful. And um, actually, it chokes me up a little bit as I think of our dear Melinda, who went to be with the Lord, what, six weeks ago now? She's spending Christmas with Jesus this year. Not with us, but with Jesus. Okay, we have some uh, open open uh, mic calls to get to, and I think the one I'd like to uh, do first is Amber. She's probably been waiting longest. Um, it has to do with gender uh, pronouns and stuff, so let's hear from Amber. Hi, Greg. My name is Amber. Um, I work in a Catholic hospital system in Appalachia, and I have a question about something we've been facing recently. Um, New uh, CMS, which is Medicaid and Medicare, requirements from last year came out that they uh, require that hospitals provide data on health disparities to, quote, improve health equity. Uh, Disparities are things like homelessness, lack of transportation. It also includes identifying as LGBTQ+. We previously did not have any way in our system to provide this data, so to fix this, my administration has now incorporated four questions on patient intake, which includes things like sex assigned at birth, gender identity, sexual orientation, and preferred gender expressions slash pronouns. Patients are allowed to refuse the questionnaire, although it gets put in the system as refuse to answer, which, if you ask me, is not really an accurate um, answer, seeing as I don't agree with the concept of the question to begin with. Hmm. When patients do answer, it gets put into the chart, and the pronouns show up everywhere. Pretty much anywhere the name or date of birth is listed, the pronouns immediately follow. Mm -hmm. This has taken effect on all of my patients. Even 90-year-olds have pronouns listed now. Hmm. Some people have refused, but most just go along with it because they don't want to make a fuss. Mm -hmm. I have spoken with members of our ethics committee about this, and I have appealed to our Catholic roots, um, to which I have basically gotten the same answer that we need to serve the marginalized. I have asked questions about what they mean by that, and they say marginalized people are those who have not been treated well in the past. Then they give examples of how some LGBT people have not been treated well, such as staff joking about in the hallway, etc. 
I try to argue that I agree everyone should be treated with respect, but I disagree that using inappropriate pronouns is necessary in order to do this. Hmm. It's like we just keep talking past each other because we disagree about basic concepts, as in the meaning of respect. I would really appreciate any advice. I've spoken out as a leader at this hospital. I've made my opinion known. Several of my patients have complained, but it doesn't seem to matter because the vast majority have complied and remained silent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told that this is basic healthcare protocol now, and I'm looked at like I'm the crazy one for going against it. Mm. I would really appreciate your advice and what you would do if you were in my shoes. Thank mm. you. Wow. I, Amber, I, um, I'm borderline, um, furious right now because this kind of thing uh, really upsets me. Uh, there, there are two, two aspects to this based on what you've told me so far. And one is, what is your responsibility given the instructions offered to you? And are you somehow compromised in fulfilling that responsibility as described? But the second issue is the the dynamic of the the cultural dynamic where this is in play, which has has required this kind of thing. It it it's nuts. I'm uh, it's just nuts. This is basic healthcare protocol. Excuse me. This isn't basic healthcare protocol. It's politics. All right. And when the, when the justification is that we have. Uh, we are trying to serve the marginalized, and who are those that are marginalized? Those, um, th- those groups that have been hurt in the past. All right, well, those marginalized groups in the past are not the individual whose health care needs you're serving now. The individual is not a group. The individual is an individual receiving care. It seems to me a, a wild stretch to say because some of the some groups have been marginalized sometime in the past that you have to adapt and and change the system to um, the way they've done here to the person that's in the present. Why can't you just give them health care? Why does any of this matter to you giving them health care? But what it amounts is to is a narrative that is being forced on, the, on, on everybody, and some people are simply not in a position to, um, to stop it, to change it. Uh, this is a social contagion. That's all it is. This is not a real problem, the gender stuff. All right? It's a made-up problem. Am I saying that there are no people that that don't have a genuine gender dysphoria? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there have always been people like that, but it's been a minuscule slice of the population. What is going on here is social—what's um, the word I'm looking for? Social conditioning or social engineering. That's what's going on here. And with a bunch of politically correct lingo attached to it, all right? I mean, the fact is you have some people who have refused—it sounded like you said, Amber, that refused to even give their so-called preferred pronouns, as if everybody has a preferred pronoun. Plus, by the way, the language of sex assigned at birth, 
Really? This is the way the government, I, I guess this information is coming down from on high somewhere and descending on the Catholic hospital. I wish the Catholics at that hospital had the courage to say no, but apparently they don't. And now you're stuck as someone who works at that hospital, making all of the right kinds of appeals and still getting nowhere. Sex is not assigned at birth, because nobody signs, assigns a penis or a vagina. Pardon me. They come as part of the package. Take a look. That's all it takes. That's all that's required. Sex is not assigned. By the way, it's interesting how often, if you want to take this another step, these sex assigned at birth, it's really amazing that how often the stupid, politically incorrect doctor gets it right. I'm joking, right? Okay, so this is really frustrating. What do you do? Um, what you're asked to do is to fill out a form. You don't agree with the ideas on the form, but you're still asked to fill the form out on behalf of the patient. So you're just writing down the information that the patient gives you, if the patient wants to conform to that. As you pointed out, many do, just to go along and not, you know, rock the boat, which is another sad situation. But... Um, I think, Amber, you are morally free to fill the form out. What if they ask, what religion are you? And you're a Christian, but the patient is a Hindu. Would you be, be free to write Hindu down, even though you think Hinduism taken as a whole is a false religion? I think you would. This just is kind of annoying because they're they're poking you in the eye with it right? And rubbing your nose in it. That's what's going on here. And that is troublesome, frustrating, makes me angry. Nevertheless, there's going to be more of this in the future. And if it's just, there's no stopping it, no individual human. We can choose for ourselves not to live by lies. So if somebody asks me for my preferred pronouns, I'm going to say I don't have any preferred pronouns. I have a sex. I'm a male. Use the pronouns appropriate to males. That's the way I'm going to say it. I'm 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 cisgendered by their uh, assessment, but I'm not going to even say that because it implies that you could have a a a gender that's different from your sex. And that's kind of legitimate. No, I'm not going to play along with that game. I'm not going to say my preferred pronouns are he, him, because though they are my pronouns, they are not my preferred pronouns. I don't prefer them. It's like I don't prefer Kokel as a last name. It just is my last name. <laughs> it isn't a preference. I mean, I don't mind it. Actually, people, you know, when you're kids, they make fun of things like that. I always took it as a mark of distinction. Never bothered, bothered me at all. All the variations that people, Cocoa Puffs and Kooky and Koki and Kook Bro and whatever. But it's me. That's my name. And male is my sex. And him and he are the appropriate pronouns for the male sex, 
but they're not my preferred pronouns. That's the pushback that I would give if I'm being asked. But in this case, Amber, you're not being asked for your pronouns. You are just being asked to jot down what people say their preferred pronouns are. And I don't see a problem with that. Um, I, I do see a problem with the assigned language. Um, and maybe I would say, <laughs> oh, it's so frustrating because the left is so clever with language. All right. Um, th when you are born, there is only one sex in question or in view or on the table. The sex dictated by your genitals. All right. You're not thinking about, does my gender identity match my genitals? That doesn't come till later. So you're only dealing with genitals right now. So it's not sex that's assigned. It's sex that's observed. So maybe you could say, when you get to this point, what sex were you when you were born? Just to avoid the assigned language. You're still going to get the information you want from that person, what whoever your superiors are want regarding that person, and you could fill in all the blanks. But you might be able to adjust the language just bec just so you don't have to play into their hands. It's really, it's really totalitarian. All of this is totalitarian. It is not about being sensitive to people, serving the marginalized. Guess who's marginalized right now, Amber? People like you. People like you are the marginalized ones right now, and nobody cares about that. They care about their politically correct narrative that they're forcing on someone else, their understanding of reality. So you know that. I'm not telling you anything new. But uh, th that would be my suggestion about how to handle these situations. Let's take a break, and we'll come back with more of your open mic questions when we return. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. If a person who identifies as transgender asks you to use their preferred pronouns, should you honor that request? 
Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All right, friends. I, I apologize for kind of sounding annoyed. Um, I was annoyed, and a lot of these things are really annoying. And uh, they're just going to get worse. I and I don't always know how best to advise people. I I have mentioned a few times that I think it was last year that I finished the rise and fall of the Third Reich. I read through that what thousand page book or whatever it was a long book had a lot of footnotes. So, but whatever, it, it, going through a step by step by William Shearer, what happened? Uh, just after the sec- the First World War, and then into the ascension of Adolf Hitler in 1933 as chancellor, and then as dictator soon after, and then everything that uh, resulted based on these ideas, you, you see a certain kind of process in place. And, and it, it's not just Hitler, it's totalitarians of all sorts follow the same pattern. And it's very, it's very, um, it's unnerving, it's frustrating in in the sense it makes me angry, but it's unnerving too, to see the same patterns in place in this country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And uh, it befalls certain groups to stand against that, you know, (laughs) I think this is part of what the church has to do, being salt and light, and individuals in the church. But when it comes to individual circumstances, it becomes a little bit more difficult. So it's not always easy to give counsel, even though we know what's right and what's wrong. We don't know what is best, all things considered, in some circumstances. Now, I think a lot of this transgender stuff is going to go away pretty quickly once the lawsuits start rolling, and that's already happening in the the United Kingdom. But until then, we have to put up with with nonsense. It's just nonsense. It has nothing to do with serving the marginalized. It has to do with advancing a, a, a crazy agenda. Which agenda is undermining the foundation of God's created order? So there is clearly a spiritual dimension here. 
when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce and remarriage, Matthew 19, he starts by saying, Have you not read? This is something you should know. He's speaking to the Jewish leadership. That from the very beginning, this is the first chapter, God made them male and female. And that passage talks about being fruitful and multiplied, no duh. And then the next chapter Jesus cites is chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, not his two dads or his two moms, and cleave to his wife, male and female, and the two become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus goes right back to the creation order, an order that's established so that we would flourish. And when that order is violated, we don't flourish. No duh. Look around you. Anyway, this isn't going away. This is not going to go away anytime really soon. I don't know how long it's going to take for the lawsuits and this thing to kick in. But I do know that a lot of people are getting fed up with this. A lot of people see through this nonsense, but they aren't the people who hold the the reins. They're not those in power. So we continue. All right, I got a question here from Holly about extreme sports. Never had that kind of question before. Let's see what Holly has to say. Hello, Greg. I have been listening to the show now for 16 years. It has shaped the way I read the Bible and view the world. Thank you for faithfully guiding so many of us. Mm -hmm. My question in a nutshell is, does the Bible have anything to say about participating in extreme sports? My 13-year-old son is into freestyle mountain biking and snowboarding. My concerned parents have brought some verses to his attention to guide him away from his activities. In particular, they brought up 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and also Luke 4, 12, where Satan is tempting Jesus to jump off the temple wall, and Jesus replies, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Mm-hmm. I don't really see how the context of these verse, verses applies to prohibiting extreme sports, but I wanted to see what you think. Mm. I know you used to rock climb, so I thought you might have some <laughs> thoughts on this issue. Are there any other verses that would apply to extreme sports? The second part to my question has to do with how to deal with achievement and fame in sports. My son is getting gear and equipment from companies to promote on his social media, which my husband runs, and he's also being asked to do small filming projects. I worry about the pitfalls of fame and... um, I also have been conditioned to view certain careers, choices as more godly than others. Mm. Um, so, but I've also always loved the movie Chariots of Fire. I often think about Liddell's statement that God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could address how do we view sports, and in particular, making sports a career in light of living for God's glory. Mm-hmm. Thank you so very much. 
Wow, Holly, that's thank you for that question. And um, I do have some things to say about this, um, because part of this question has to do with w- what certain verses mean. And that's actually the easiest part of your question. Okay, <clears throat> here are the passages in question. First uh, Corinthians, uh, I think you said chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. I'll read them. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, the beginning of verse 19 starts with the word or, (laughs) which suggests there's some stuff that comes before it that's kind of important, okay? The whole section before him, before it, the four, five, or six verses, um, is talking about the way we use our bodies morally, sexually in particular, here. Verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And he goes on and makes application of that teaching, flee immorality. That's sexual immorality he's talking about. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins, the sexually immoral man here, sins against his own body. And then the verse, do you you not know that you're a temple? Okay. Characteristically, when someone misuses this passage in 1 Corinthians, they're, they're using it to talk about diet, you know, you're you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, or or actually, it's more like smoking, I guess, is the more frequent application. You shouldn't smoke because you're a temple. But they don't put the dietary thing on there, because that would be more pressing, you know. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit, you're making it into a pizza hut. Paul didn't have that kind of thing in mind when he wrote this. He's not talking about the physical condition of our body, but our moral behavior that uses our body for immorality that compromises um, our body and our spirit and our connection with the Lord. That's what's being spoken of here, okay? So this passage has to do with moral conduct, not amoral conduct. In other words, conduct that doesn't have moral consequences, like, I think, extreme sports. And uh, the passage from Luke, likewise, and your instincts are good here, Holly, does not properly apply, because in this particular case, you have a temptation that the nature of which is that Jesus, who is destined by God to become the Messiah, throws himself off of the precipice so that God must act to save him lest he die and not fulfill his divine purpose. That's testing the Lord. That is trying to force God's hand in some way, okay? That's not what's going on in snowboarding and skydiving and rock climbing and things like that. That's not the, uh, the, the issue at all. So I don't think that either of these verses ha- have anything to do with the kinds of sports your son is involved with, okay? Now, that doesn't mean they're okay, I'm not saying I or nay on that at the moment. I'm just saying that these verses aren't ones that are going to help you. I actually don't know of any verses that might be leveraged into play 
regarding extreme sports. Um, and just think of this. We all drive cars on freeways. A hundred years ago, 125 years ago, they didn't have that kind of stuff. They had horses, right? Bringing cars into our lives by comparison to horses would be considered by many people an extreme sport because you go from, you know, maybe trotting along at 15 miles an hour to blasting at 70 miles an hour down a freeway with a whole bunch of other people doing the same thing. So the idea of what is extreme may be somewhat culturally determined. We end up doing all kinds of things that many people would consider ex- would <clears throat> we do them now that years ago many would have considered extreme in the sense that they represent exposure of our body uh, to to damage or to um, lethal forces or whatever. All right. So th- this is it, it's it's a uh, and even the sports that were considered really like lethal. Um, many of them have gotten a lot safer just because of the safety um, elements that are incorporated, like skydiving, for example, or uh, things like that. Well, I sky I I jumped out of an airplane in 1972, <laughs> spring of '72, and I was on a, a static line. I jumped out, pulled the cord for me, but I wasn't had, didn't have some guy attached to my back. You know, helping me to fly down. I just jumped out and did it, like, you know, <laughs> the regular way. Now there's all these other things that are in play. Was there risk? Um, yeah, I guess so, but not as much risk as f- driving on the freeway. Uh, I also was a, a rock climbing instructor for a number of years, and I even climbed in Yosemite Valley. Now I didn't do big face climbs, I did upper cathedral spire. It was quite a climb, though, I got to say. It was fun. And I led the last pitch, which was uh, a squeeze chimney. Anybody who does that kind of thing, you know what I'm talking about. You don't protect that. <laughs> you can't. You're so stuck. In, you're not going to fall. You're stuck inside this squeeze chimney, you know, half in, half out, inching your way up. And it was exhausting. In any event, so I've done a lot of these things. And for many years, I was a, a, a snow skied. And uh, um, so, I, you know, I, I don't. I, I don't have any moral qualms myself about doing those things. Now, people have to make a decision about the risk that they're taking. And sometimes the risk is 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 uh, um, is too much. Uh, there are free solo rock climbers. Free soloists are people who are climbing by themselves without any aid of any kind. They're not using the rope or equipment to help them ascend, and they're not using equipment to protect them if they fall. They're free soloists, and a lot of these guys have died climbing. Uh, the most famous one in the world, um, still alive and still climbing, but I don't know if he's free soloing anymore because he's married and he's got kids. And uh, I think that the documentary Solo was made about him, and there was another climber very significant theory. I, I can't remember their names, but the, the documentary is called Dawn Wall, D-A-W-N, and both of these are portions of the El Capitan face that were being climbed by these guys. It's pretty incredible what they did, but very dangerous. And I would say it's irresponsible if you have somebody that's risking their life in this way 
when other people are defending, depending upon them for their sustenance. You got a wife and you have a, have children. You can't do the kinds of things that you used to do. And one of those things is you can't take the risks risks that you used to take. Okay, there's a stewardship there, and there's a responsibility issue there. Now, there's going to be exceptions to that. What about if you're a policeman and get married and have kids? You know, you're a first responder. What if you're military and you go to a war zone? Well, that's part of the commitment, putting your life at risk. It's not... <laughs> It's a profession in that case, though. It's not a pastime. It's not recreation. All right. So those are my thoughts on that. Um, I'm not against those sports. Um, they're, 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 they're sports. They're sports activities. Just think if you play football. You play football, you're getting beaten up. Your body's getting thrashed. Those guys retire after five, six, seven, eight years. And five, six, seven, eight years later, their bodies start falling apart because of taking all the punishment. That just goes with the territory. Now, I do think uh, that that there are liabilities to doing the, these kinds of things professionally, and it's not because it's an extreme sport. It's because you, if you are good at it, you get thrust into the public eye in a way that is very, very challenging for a young person. And their eyes get really big with the money and the fame and the girls and all this other stuff that's available to them, and it's it's just too much for many of them. I think you are entirely correct in being deeply concerned about how uh, that professional aspect of your son's sport can influence his character and can damage his soul for all the reasons I mentioned, the liberties, the latitudes, the money, the the sexual uh, temptations, the fame, all of that. And this is going to be then a part of, part of you and your husband's responsibility to work closely with your son. The more attention he gets to help him to see that this ain't what it's all about. This is not the core. This isn't the foundation. This isn't your identity. This isn't the most important thing in the world. I do think that there's a sense in which, like in the the, uh, the movie Chariots of Fire, when an athlete performs well in his uh, chosen sport that he feels God's pleasure. I, I, that makes sense to me. I played tournament tennis for 20 years. And uh, I loved the sport. There was an aesthetic element to it that felt good to do it. When people do sports really well, there's a their transcended element. In the case of a Christian, they can give glory to God and see God's hand in that. It's all well and good. But there are also these pitfalls and uh, that, that one needs to be aware of which is true in a lot of professions, but especially in professions like this where there's a lot of visibility given to an individual. Um, teach your boy, if you decide to go this direction, that what these people care about is you and your money, rather, what what you're going to give them, not who you are. You as parents care about who he is and the man he's developing into. Um, kind of on that note, Right now, if you go on Amazon Prime, you can see a documentary called Bye Bye Barry. And it's about—now, I know that 
football aficionados are really being shaking their head when I say this. Barry Sanders, is that right? Okay, got it. This guy was an incredible football player. Uh, one of the most storied running backs in history. And um, But he played for a kind of a so-so team, the Lions team, the Lions football team. Did I get that right? Detroit. Okay. And um, what's interesting about Barry is his humility. And the best thing I could suggest about seeing that is just about characterizing that is just see the documentary. And he had a dad that rode him hard, maybe too hard. But he taught him a few things. Like when you enter the end zone with a football and you make a touchdown, you don't do a dance, you don't do back flips, you just toss the ref the ball, you're just doing your job. And that's what he was known for. Maybe not known for, everybody knew he did that. That wasn't his mark. Other people did it too, but this is he just didn't want all the fanfare. He's just doing his job. So there is a, a point of view that's communicated in there, and it be one thing that is evident in the documentary is that uh, Barry Sanders uh, didn't take himself that seriously as a football player, okay, in a bad way. He wanted to do the best he possibly could do every time he was handed the ball. He wanted to be good at what he did, but he did not care for all the fame and the fall draw and everything else. And by the way, when he got drafted, he was a Heisman Trophy winner. When he got drafted, he got the largest contract anyone had ever gotten out of college at the time. But it didn't change him. And so here's a model of someone who can excel at their sport and be publicly visible, who does not allow all of those things to corrupt him. And that would be the message that I would encourage you to be communicating to your son. Don't get big eyes, son. Do your best. Be a student of your craft. <laughs> Bloom where you're planted in your craft, as it were, which he's doing. And if you want to move forward professionally, okay, we'll be behind you. But don't let it corrupt your soul. It's not the most important thing. It's a job. It's an opportunity. Do it with humility, as unto the Lord. Don't let it get the best of you. That That's the kind of thing that I would be saying. But you are right to be concerned. All right? Thank you, Holly, for that question. Let's see. What do we got here? Uh, let's do John Saylor. Got that? We know that people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, never having heard the name of Jesus. Does that still occur today? And does Acts 17... 30 through 31 address that. Okay, that's it, huh? All righty. Uh, let's read what Acts, in this passage, Acts 17, is uh, Paul's sermon on the mount, so to speak, uh, to the Athenians as he's, uh, as he's speaking regarding the uh, worshiping an unknown God, and and the passage referred to there is like Paul's altar call. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, you're worshiping this unknown God and these other things kind of in ignorance. 
having overlooked these times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, turn around, change their perspective. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, now that's the verse in question. I've actually gone over this challenge or this question uh, many times in a lot of different directions. I have a whole talk on it. Um, It's called The Heathen and the Unknown God. I guess it's a politically incorrect title now, but I chose the title probably 35 or 40 years ago, and um, I'm just sticking with it. That's the unevangelized. What is the fate of the unevangelized? And some have pointed out that people seem to have been saved in the Old Testament by exercising faith, and they certainly didn't know about Jesus. So maybe that's the case now. And my response is that I have no reason to believe that that's so. That there are people out and about somewhere in the far reaches of the world that haven't heard the gospel and are going to perish um, simply because they haven't heard the gospel. Um, And since they have no gospel available to them, then God is going to make a special set of conditions for them and maybe save them in an Old Testament kind of way. But an Old Testament kind of way, the salvation by faith always had an object, whether it's 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 uh, the promises that God made that in the case of Abraham he was trusting in in Genesis chapter eighteen. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or whether it was faith expressed for forgiveness in functioning in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. There was always something there. Now, my sense is, and, and you, issues of theology will determine, in some ways, where a person goes in answering this question. But... Um, my conviction is that people in their native state are rebelling against God. That's pretty straightforward from the Scripture. Romans chapter 3 has a lot to say about that. In their native state, they're not seeking God, they're running from Him. Romans chapter 1, for all that is evident about God is right there for them to see, but they reject it, they, re, they um, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because of immoral motives. So somehow God's got to get past that act before they're even turning to Him. Now, if God is going to get past, somehow manage their native rebellion and open their eyes, then it seems to me He's also going to provide the kind of revelation directly to them that they're going to need in order to put their faith in the only Savior that's available, the New Covenant Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord. And um, we have some examples of that in Scripture, where people who were doing the best they could, seeking God out, God met them halfway, if you want to put it that way, the Ethiopian eunuch, coming to worship the God of Israel, on his way back to Ethiopia, and reading uh, what, the book of Isaiah? 
and then Philip being transported to him to do what? To give him the gospel of Jesus so that he could be saved. Or in Acts chapter 10, we have Peter receiving a revelation, like Cornelius did as well, that brought them both together so that Peter could tell this righteous man, Cornelius, about the Savior that he still needed. He wasn't saved already. He needed the gospel. And this is the reason why we are sent to the world, to bring this message to the people that need it. Now, there, there's a very kind of popular version of theology that's going around now um, that is characteristic of Roman Catholic understanding now, called inclusivism. And that is the view that Jesus was necessary for salvation. Nobody's sins could be forgiven without the sacrificial atoning work of Christ. However, that doesn't mean you have to believe in Jesus in order to benefit from what Jesus has done. You can follow a different religion, and because of your faith in that other religion, God will recognize it as faith in Him and, in a sense, apply the blood of Christ to them to save them. Uh, these are sometimes called uh, anonymous Christians. Karl Rahner, the Roman Catholic theologian, I think uses that phrase to describe them. You are Christian, even though you don't know it. I remember uh, having an event with Dennis Prager and Father Greg Coiro, a Roman Catholic Capuchin Franciscan friar, and that event was a conversation with an audience of Jews, and Dennis was asking the Protestant me and Father Greg, the Roman Catholic priest, certain questions, and one was whether Jesus was necessary for salvation. Did you have to believe in him? And I said yes and gave my explanation. And Greg said to those Jews that were there meeting for High Holy Day services that out of that they were already in the church. The Roman Catholic Church is the true church, and they were already in the church and didn't know it. Even though they considered themselves Jews, it was their their um, genuine, sincere pursuit of God through the religious mechanism they had uh, that been raised with that qualified them for salvation through Jesus already. Or as one person in the audience said, afterwards, that's a freebie. You just get it. No worries. We don't have to worry about Jesus. So I was giving one message, and and whatever I gave with the right hand, Father Coiro took away with the left. But that's inclusivism. Now, the question that I have is, what's the point of evangelism if that's true? They're already in. If they're doing the best they have, they can with their own religion. Um, they're certainly their salvation is not at stake. Then why the urgency for evangelism? And we see that even in the New Testament. Um, and w- what do we make of the Ten Commandments? You know, if Mother Teresa said, which she did in her autobiography, that my job is not to make a Hindu into a Christian, but help a Hindu be a better Hindu, and that's the inclusivist view then what she is saying is that it's her job to make to help a Hindu be a better, better idol worshiper, because that's entailed in Hinduism. But that's a violation of the First Commandment. How, how can that possibly be right? Well, it's not. And uh, this doctrine, this idea that you could be saved apart from Christ—now, since the New Covenant period, 
Prior to that, it was different. Salvation has always been by faith. But the object of faith, the faith, the 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 um, the thing that one focused in on was different at different times. Underlying it always, though, was the work of Christ. Paying in arrears for those that came before, praying, you know, in advance for those that follow. And now, since Christ, the object of faith, is also the ground of salvation, the person of Jesus himself. That's why Paul said to the Gentile Philippian jailer when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And there are lots of stories. I'm thinking of Don Richardson's writings um, and uh, Eternity in Their Heart, uh, where he's talking about how God gets that message through missionaries to the remotest places, or sometimes through a special revelation. But it's the content and substance of the gospel and salvation through Jesus of Nazareth. That That is the message they end up understanding, and that is the message that saves them ultimately. All right, that's it for this hour, friends. Thank you so much for being a part of it. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now. <laughs> 